get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibney. We have a special episode this week, Justin. I'm excited about it. I'm really excited as well. I must admit, this is going to be a, a, a good interview, a good episode, a treat for everybody. I felt a little excluded uh, because you were actually recording in the pristine U.S. Senate studio uh, with our guest. And in comparison, I felt like I was in a uh, recording from my mother's uh, water damaged basement or something. But it was good because it's, it's not every day that you get to uh, speak uh, with two people in the most uh, important deliberative body in the world. And so church politics was excited about this interview. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, it all came together. So quickly we, we found out that we, we had the opportunity and the interest on behalf of Senator James Lankford from Oklahoma and Senator Chris Coons of Delaware. They've been doing a little round of interviews, uh, following the national prayer breakfast, because it was announced that they'll be co-chairing the 2019 national prayer breakfast. Uh, and we were able to, we were able to, uh, uh, arrange, uh, arrange the details so that, you know, we were recording an interview, you know, three or four days after we found out it was a possibility. And so, you know, want to thank, uh, the senders staff, obviously thank the senders themselves. Uh, they were, uh, rushing, uh, they rushed to the studio after roll call votes and then had to rush back to the floor for more votes. Uh, and so we're, we're just uh, we're grateful uh, that, that we got to have a conversation, not just a conversation. I, I think it's a, a really good one that'll be helpful um, to, to all of our listeners out there. It was helpful uh, to, to me for sure. Uh, Justin, we'll we'll talk a bit more about the interview after we air it and we're going to get right to it. But but any any kind of uh, anything you want to say to kind of set the stage? Sure. Just, you know, church politics is focused on the intersection between faith and politics. And while faith is often, you know, a talking point for many politicians and will be charitable about the veracity of that, uh, it's often difficult sometimes to see where it actually comes into play. But we had the opportunity to speak to two senators whose faith is visible and you'll hear it in the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just before we uh, jump in, uh, well, I, I do want to note one thing that was special about recording the interview is it was actually uh, uh, the the day that uh, Billy Graham was lying in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. So That's right. there were just people just lined up around the Capitol to honor Billy. Uh, and so it, it was a special moment uh, just to see all of that. It was it was really quite a scene. And, and then before we jump into the interview, I just want to. Uh, we are so grateful for our, our listeners. This is uh, uh, we're, we're now almost a year into the church politics podcast. If if uh, if you are a, a loyal listener, maybe if you're just checking in for the first time, uh, we're in this for the long haul. What would be helpful is if 
uh, you would subscribe to this podcast so you make sure you get it every week on, on iTunes or on any of the podcast uh, providers. Uh, and then we would also ask you to review the podcast. It would really help us as we're spreading the word. We're, we're hoping uh, to get uh, content like this out to more and more people. Uh, there aren't many places where you can go for serious uh, political analysis from a Christian worldview that will bring you a guest like Senator Langford and Senator Coons. And with that, let's let's cut to the interview, and we'll uh, uh, we'll we'll get there right after the break. And uh, after the interview, Justin and I will recap. Thank you. All right, this is the Church Politics Podcast, and we are very excited to have two special guests with us, Senator James Langford from Oklahoma and Senator Chris Coons from Delaware. Senators, thank you so much for joining us. Really glad to be with you. It's it's really wonderful. Uh, it, it's a great time to have uh, you on any time, but it was just announced that the two of you are going to be uh, co-chairing the 2019 National Prayer Breakfast. I was able to be a part of that prayer breakfast when I was staffing the president and uh, in the years since. And uh, really just want to talk about how you envision that kind of coming together. Uh, and if you see uh, that y'all will maybe get fed up with each other over the course of the next year. Do you think you'll be able to hold it together? <laughs> well, I think one of the real blessings of my time in the Senate has been to get to know James. Uh, we work together every week on yeah. the weekly prayer breakfast here in the Senate. And uh, I think the challenge of working together to develop a program, to choose a keynote speaker, to choose uh, musical entertainment and, um, and and to put together a really powerful prayer breakfast for next year uh, we'll frankly strengthen our friendship. Uh, we'll have differences of opinion. Or it'll tear us apart completely. <laughs> we always do. Um, but, uh, you know, I actually think uh, James and I may be here quite a while together. And um, I'm hopeful uh, about what our friendship and what our partnership and issues around faith might mean uh, for our service and um, and for our families and for our time here together. Absolutely. That, that's wonderful. Uh, uh, Justin would, would love to would love to bring uh, you you in uh, uh, and uh, uh, to continue the conversation. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Senators, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Uh, one of the first things that I learned in Lincoln Douglas debate in high school was that in order to even have a debate, uh, that you need some common ground, that you need some shared values. And in today's discourse, it seems there's less and less of that. Uh, we can't even uh, seem to agree on the premise to even get to the question or the problem that needs to be solved. Now, it's my understanding that attending a, a weekly uh, Senate Bible study helped you to facilitate a friendship. Can you talk about that a little bit for us and how that provided uh, common ground for you two and why that's important? Yeah, I can talk about that, and I can also talk about Lincoln-Douglas debate if you want to do that, because I started <laughs> doing that early on as well. Uh, I, I would tell you we've got two issues there, not just with Lincoln-Douglas debate. It's that most of the time we refuse to actually debate the problems. Uh, it's much easier just to be able to skip the problem and to say, that's hard, we'll do that some other time, and it's a constant move on with anything that's difficult to just ignore it. Uh, the time that we get together on Wednesday mornings, there's about 20 to 25 of us get together. We're not talking about policy at all. We're talking about our faith. It's, it's a much deeper level. Uh, we're talking about our, our history and our family. It, it's, a, it's a very private time, uh, and it's a time that's reserved just for senators. Uh, so there's no other staff there. There's no other outside entity. It's just senators and former senators that have the opportunity to be able to sit down and be able to talk about how we're really doing personally. That does change the dynamic of conversations. When you get to know someone 
their background, what drives them, uh, who they are as a person. Uh, you get to know more about their family. It does affect it. it. It is very easy in normal political life to demonize an individual based on how they vote, and you just try to create a persona that's not real. Uh, this is trying to be able to move beyond the persona that media can create to who who are you really? Yeah, and it's almost you know uh, pointing out polarization is conventional wisdom now, but uh, it's often the polarization on the other side. Yes, we have a polarization problem, and as soon as they knock it off, right. <laughs> you know what well, we can get back together. Well, and the in the media thrives on that. You you always for every interview you want to have one person shaking their head no and another one nodding their head yes. Yeah. I mean that that's what makes a better interview is to create some kind of controversy. They never focus on the two people next to each other, both agreeing. Uh, that doesn't make great TV. And so you, you never see that. Yeah. Senator Lankford, you and Senator Scott decided to kind of confront this polarization problem with Solution Sundays. Would you just describe what that looks like and maybe give us a bit of a preview of what it'll look like moving forward and what you hope to build on? Yeah. A, a couple of years ago, I started asking people just a very simple question about race. Uh, and I would just randomly ask people both in state and in D.C. and places where I traveled a very simple question. Has your family ever invited a family of another race to your home for dinner? <laughs> now, is, as simple as that question is, I've been shocked at the number of people that either gave me a blank stare or they responded back to me. I have friends of another race. And I would smile and say, that's not what I asked. <laughs> I asked, has your family ever invited a family of another race to your home for dinner? And what that has sparked is this ongoing dialogue among individual families. No, we haven't. And then this question, who would we ask? And if you don't have a relationship deep enough with someone of another race that you could even ask them over for dinner, there's a racial issue in your life and you didn't even know it because you've kept racial friendships at an acquaintance level rather than a friendship level. And it's shown by just not being in your home. So again, I'm not trying to embarrass anyone. I'm trying to expose a heart issue because I'm convinced mm -hmm. the racial issues in America aren't going to be solved with a piece of legislation. They'll be solved in the heart. And that starts best with families. And there is no substitute to your kids growing up, seeing kids of another race sitting at your own dinner table and their parents just having normal conversation about the weather, about football, about what's happening, what just normal conversation. And for your kids to see that's normal. If they never see that in your home, your kids always have a suspicion. There's nothing you have to say. It's just what they never saw or what they did see hmm. uh, makes a big difference. So we, we've pushed that on the issue of race for several years. Clearly, that could work in partisan issues. That can work in all kinds of divides. Uh, but it's it's breaking through the threshold of our own homes and inviting families where there's disagreement or whether it's just lack of friendship into your own home and just having that kind of conversation. Yeah. One of the things I like yeah, about James— just to compliment James on uh, what he was just raising, you know, he is conservative. He's a conservative Republican. Um, he, he worked in there that um, this kind of individual one-on-one -on -one family-based encounter with people of different backgrounds is going to be more effective than government intervention. We might have a different view about what's the appropriate role of government in trying to address racial inequality, but you couldn't possibly question uh, the sincerity, uh, the genuineness, the depth of his concern about an engagement around racial issues and the the novelty and the uh, honesty of the questions that he's posing to so many friends. So one of the things that's been great about our getting to know each other is getting past a two-dimensional understanding mm -hmm. of each other, uh, which all too often is what happens uh, when we simply confront each other on cable or uh, on the floor of the Senate, and to instead recognize that he's someone who's trying to bring uh, earnestly um, crafted solutions to complex problems. Absolutely.
Justin. Awesome. Uh, Senator Coons, uh, I was a delegate at the 2016 Democratic National Convention, and in my speech to get elected here in Georgia's 5th Congressional District, which is Congressman Lewis's district, I made a point that uh, the Democratic Party can't be a party that neglects, disregards, or disrespects the faith community. Last year, you wrote an article in, uh, for The Atlantic entitled, Progressive Values Can't Be Just Secular Values. In that article, you cite a Pew Research poll that found that one-third of Democrats think churches and religious organizations have a negative impact on the United States. Can you tell us why you thought that was an important article to write and how Democrats can make some progress in that area? Well, thanks for the question, Justin. Um, I'll, I'll actually be with our friend uh, John Lewis uh, this weekend in Memphis uh, for a commemoration of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, and one of the things that I have found most powerful in my life is uh, the witness and the leadership of people um, who bring their faith to work, uh, who talk about how their faith inspires them uh, to challenge injustice, uh, to try and make the world a better place. Uh, and I'm concerned, frankly, that more and more Democrats uh, feel um, embarrassed about or um, uncomfortable with sharing anything about their faith and how it connects to their service. Uh, some of the most progressive members of the Senate, uh, members I'm very close to, um, don't ever talk about how it was their experience of faith uh, when they were children that motivated them to get into public service and politics in the first place. Uh, and I think many of their constituents would be very surprised to hear uh, their deeply held uh, religious views and how, in particular, the, the radical justice um, that the gospel focuses on is really what motivated them to be involved in service in the first place. Um, so part of what motivated me around writing that article was an increasing concern um, that if young people— uh, in America are looking at different role models and different heroes, and they don't ever hear from um, those whose politics are progressive that they see any connection between the values of the gospel um, and those politics, then they assume that they are secular uh, and that they're not in any way connected to God's thirst for righteousness and justice. Mm. That, that's, that's really good. Thank you. Yeah. We're, uh, we're here at the, uh, at the Capitol today and, uh, 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 Billy Graham is lying in honor uh, in the Capitol Rotunda. Uh, would just love to uh, hear your reflections on Reverend Billy Graham. It's been amazing to see an outpouring of uh, uh, remembrance and support and uh, from President Obama to, to, uh, to all kinds of people. Senator Langford, Senator Coons, how are you kind of processing this? What do you think it means for the country? Uh, well, it, it's a significant day, and it's amazing to me how many folks that are 25 years old and younger don't know who Dr. Graham is, or they may have heard the name before but have no context for it. Uh, for others in a generation just older than them, uh, they see him as one of the most uh, singular, significant individuals in all of Christendom uh, for the things that he did on racial reconciliation, reaching across ecumenical lines, uh, reaching out to people in all places, uh, the, the number of world leaders that came to him and said they're seeking counsel from him, uh, the life of integrity that he lived. Uh, one of the comments that um, Chaplain Black made today during the um, time of remembrance in the rotunda was he had 99 years of integrity, mm. uh, where literally he lived a, as Chaplain Black called it, a scandal-free life. He is a public individual that spoke to millions of people, traveled all over the world, had this incredibly large organization, had media constantly looking at his personal life and his public life, and was scandal-free for 99 years. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of people that can hit that standard. 
but he also kept his message, not as a partisan message. You, you never heard it. And Chris and I can talk freely about this, about our own personal faith and walk with God and belief in Jesus Christ and the redemption that we have in not only our own soul, but the offer of that to other people. He came with a very clear message of Jesus loves you and you can know the God who created you and was so simple with it and so apolitical with it that the only time he got involved in anything like issues that were controversial was the issues of race, to be able to push our nation and other nations to be able to resolve racial issues. But he kept coming back over and over again to God's love for people and keeping it that simple. Uh, And it was an incredibly unifying voice for our nation. And he'll be sorely missed. And I think that part of why um, uh, Dr. Graham, Billy Graham, was able to lead and live that um, life of virtue um, was that he relied not on himself, but on God, Mm. Um, that he lived and and loved and embraced the gospel. Uh, It is hard, the pressures uh, on those in ministry and those particularly in evangelism uh, who travel frequently, who are away from home, who uh, engage in kind of mass uh, crusades. Um, Sadly, there have been been many more um, who've been flawed or fallen, uh, who've been human. Uh, than who've lived the kind of life that Billy Graham did. So um, I, I still remember the first time I got to hear his message, uh, and I'll just agree uh, with what James is saying. It was so uh, powerful in its simplicity, in its earnestness, in its directness, mm. um, that it really was about witnessing to a connection that was personal, but also transformational. Um, so his is a voice that will be missed, but his is a voice that really was rooted in the Spirit, and so it won't be missed because the Spirit hasn't left us. Right. Well, we're, we're about to wind down. You know, I'd I really just love to ask you, uh, you know, there are the national headlines about faith and politics and, and all the different controversial uh, issues and points of tension. Uh, but as representing a state, y'all get to work with faith-based communities that are just out there serving their neighbors, loving on their neighbors. Uh, what makes you hopeful about sort of the future of faith in America? Uh, exactly that. The things that I see at home, um, the the decency, the kindness, the thoughtfulness, the generosity uh, of the American people as expressed um, to the neighbors, to people they've never met, to people who uh, literally share their community or who are on the other side of the world. Um, I, I always find when I get a chance on uh, Sunday or on another day to go uh, visit with a, a community, a congregation, whether it's a synagogue or a mosque or a church uh, that I don't know, I almost always come home refreshed and encouraged, uh, challenged uh, by how big and bold their view is. Um, Americans are remarkable people, um, and they are remarkable, I think, in large part because of our our shared um, free expression of our faith uh, and the way in which it has it has drawn us out of ourselves uh, and pushed us to connect with the world. Absolutely. Yeah, we we lose track of the fact that most of the world doesn't have a free exercise of faith. Uh, they the, the the state dictates to people either that you have a certain faith, and if you don't agree with the national leaders, you're out. You either can't get a job or you're dead, yeah. or that you can have no faith here, and if you have some faith, just keep it quiet and keep it inside these buildings. This this unusual thing that America started 240 years ago of having the free exercise of religion, not only having a faith but being able to live it, publicly and privately, was a radical concept at the time. But to also say we don't have establishment. Anyone can live any faith they choose to or have no faith at all. No one thought at the time that would ever work. Uh, (laughs) And it has created this incredible, deep faith community that's not dependent on the government to be able to fund faith 
or to dictate faith, but to allow people to be able to live by the dictates of their own conscience and soul is still something that's challenged even today. And it's remarkable the number of times the issue of faith comes up where people say, I'm not sure people we can really allow people to live their faith because that means they're going to press this group and this group and go, whoa, we've had this question for two centuries and it's working remarkably well. Allow people to be able to live out their freedom. You know, Chris has an incredibly deep personal faith and we're able to have these great conversations about our own study of Scripture and what we're doing and, and walking through difficult issues and even times in votes and how you approach things. Uh, th- those are healthy dialogues for the two of us uh, in our ongoing personal relationship with Christ. Uh, but it's also a very healthy thing for the nation as well and, and local entities and living it out. And I encourage people, uh, faith is not about a political party uh, it, it's just not. Uh, but it, it's also something that I encourage people to say, if your faith only affects how you live on weekends, that's not a faith. That's a hobby. A hobby is something you do on weekends. A faith right. permeates every part of what you do. So if you can turn your faith on and off, depending on the location that you're in, yeah. I just challenge people to go deeper in their own personal faith and to have more than a hobby of religion, mm-hmm. but to have a faith that permeates their daily life. Absolutely. Justin. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Lastly, I would just ask, you know, there are a lot of especially young uh, people of faith who really want to engage civics. They really want to get involved, but they want to do it in a different way. They see some of the mistakes that have been made and it has scared a lot of people off. What I would ask you to is what's the best way your average person of faith can help out what you guys are doing, can help heal some of the divides in politics? Uh, how can we be helpful? I'll go back to what James was saying about uh, inviting someone into your home, uh, into your circle of trust or into your life uh, who comes from a different background. Um, I I think in politics in particular um, and and in recent years, we've had an awful lot of awkward Thanksgiving dinners in families uh, across the United States. Um, It's important to start by um, genuinely being loving, um, kind, open-hearted. Uh, to people who have different political views and who are passionate about those political views, um, to listen to them, uh, to meet them where they are, and then to better understand them. Uh, And then second is to not hide or be apologetic about um, your own faith views and how they move you to act. Um, I think we need um, more tolerance, uh, more respect for each other, more genuine love for each other, but we also need people to bring their faith to the public square and to their work and to their service uh, so that others can see what it is that's gotten you moving and gotten you serving and gotten you engaged. Um, Last, I'll say what I've learned from this experience today is that James has really got a voice for radio. (laughs) I've got a face for radio and he's got a voice for radio. (laughs) Well, thank you again. Let let me throw one quick thing in there. I I would challenge the generation that's struggling with this issue as the nation is right now. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, darkness does not drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Mm. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. When I read on social media and when I read people's emotions of how they react, they're trying to drive out hate with more hate. That does not work. That will not turn around a country. And so at some point, people of faith have got to determine, can I drive out hate with more hatred or do I have to engage in love in a whole new way to be able to drive this out? And I am absolutely convinced that love will drive out hate, not hate will drive out hate. And uh, it's one of the grand challenges. And I also push a community, especially a younger community, that's turning away from experiencing God together in fellowship, whether that be in a church setting or in Bible studies, Mm -hmm. but community together, they're trying to do it isolated. There is something powerful that God put into place with developing and walking Mm -hmm. with him in community. Uh, When I'm at my low points, 
almost always when I get to church, the person sitting in front of me is boldly singing, and they had a great week walking with God, That's and right. I needed that, yeah. and vice versa on that, and we, we have to be able to live in community. So finding ways to serve in community, live in community, push, but also to be able to have love drive out hate rather than hate drive out hate, I think will make a big difference in our community. Amen. Well, I can't thank you enough. Uh, just on behalf of our audience and our listeners, I know this is going to be such an encouragement to them. We want to encourage you on in this time of polarization. Uh, Y'all are such an example. Uh, the short-term interest of our politics is so contrary to the long-term interest yeah. of our nation. Uh, and so uh, we have to figure out how to live together, and y'all are helping us do that. Thank you very much. You bet. Thanks, y'all. This episode of Church Politics is brought to you by Eastlick Coffee, a coffee roasting company serving specialty coffees that are unique yet familiar, complex and comforting, featuring diverse origins that are delicious and approachable. Use the code FORTH, that's F-O-R-T-H, to get 40% off your first bag of coffee by visiting eastlickcoffee.com. Well, Justin, what an uh, amazing conversation uh, to hear from the two senders. What did what did you think of that that interview? First of all, I was honored to just have the opportunity to have a conversation, and then to see you know in a, a very in depth way them talk about uh, how we can make things better. Number one, being able to identify the problem that we all see. Sometimes when we talk to people, it's like, hey, do they? Do the people in Washington even see what everybody else sees? Huh. And I think these two senators from, you know, bipartisan coming from two, two different parties uh, show that they do get where the problem lies and they're trying to do something uh, to change it. And it wasn't shallow. Just I mean, there was that one fascinating moment in the interview where uh, Senator Langford was talking about Solution Sunday, the effort he has with Senator Scott around uh, around racism and getting people together. And Coons jumps in and says, you know, James is a conservative. I'm a liberal. Uh, I, I think the, uh, the we also need some real policy work here. Uh, and I thought that showed that the two of them are really serious about this, that they're not just trying to do a, a, a little road show and make people feel good, that they're actually invested in sharpening one another. They're invested in uh, taking each other seriously enough to disagree with one another, even in you know, an interview setting like this. So it, it, I, I was I was pretty, uh, uh, pretty impressed by by both the senators. Yeah, it showed it was genuine. Um, something that you said before is when we talk about about bipartisanship and, and a more healthy discourse, we're not talking about everyone agreeing on every single thing. That's not what that is. But it does mean taking steps to be civil. And I thought you made a very good point about that earlier. You know, you and I are somewhat kind of the political guys in a informal group of, of rising faith leaders. And a lot of those uh, young leaders want to be involved and, and have a say in politics to make things better, not in a partisan way. But I think a lot of people will be very um, encouraged by these two senators and what they're trying to do. It shows that someone is listening and actually taking action to change things. And uh, we really appreciate that. And these are uh, probably be a lot of our listeners' two favorite senators uh, in, in a short time. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to uh, cut to a break, and when we get back, we're going to share a few headlines from uh, the last week of current events that we think uh, you're going to need for the week ahead. Uh, so after the break, headlines from uh, Justin uh, and myself. And we're back with the Church Politics Podcast. Uh, uh, Justin, it, it was... Uh, 
an eventful week last week, and we thought the best way to uh, to, to summarize would just be to share uh, some headlines. Uh, uh, what uh, what story stuck out uh, to you last week? The first story. So to your point, it was certainly an eventful week. The first story that a lot of people heard about were, were the Trump tariffs, where Trump is supposed to sign tariffs on uh, imported aluminum, aluminum and steel in the next week or so. And we all know that a tariff is a tax or duty on a product made outside of the U.S. and imported here. In this uh, instance, Trump is proposing a 10% uh, tariff on aluminum and a 25% tariff on steel. Uh, that's not insignificant. And this is said uh, to be done to stop the flood of cheap uh, metals that are coming inside of the U.S. and actually hurting U.S. companies who are in the steel business. And it goes along with Trump's America's America first posture that he really ran on throughout his campaign. But it has drawn quite a bit of criticism from Republicans and even some people within the Trump administration. Uh, many fear that this will cause retaliation from some of our trade partners and even uh, could even cause a trade war. And so there's a lot of people saying this is the wrong way to go. Trump's response to that in true Trump fashion was that Trump, that trade wars are good and easy to win. Uh, it was said that Gary Cohn, who is Trump's chief economic advisor, was said to be thinking about resigning if he moved forward with this. The administration said that wasn't true, but certainly a uh, a tough one and kind of inner inner party spat going on because of this uh, tariff tariff proposal. And, and what's you know a lot of things interesting about this you know politically it's uh, it puts Democrats in an interesting position. You know it used to be the Republicans that were the pro-trade party, uh, and, and Democrats were a little behind. But now that you have Trump acting in a very un-Republican manner, you, you know, do, do Democrats really critique Trump uh, hard on this because they're the opposition party? Or do Democrats lay off because some of their base uh, it wants to see a more aggressive American posture? Uh, so it's, it's just uh, uh, unlike, you know, some of Trump's other moves over the last few months, uh, the, the politics aren't quite so quite so uh, straightforward here for the Democrats. That's a that's a fascinating story uh, for the politics, but but obviously because of the economic implications as well. Uh, another story from the Trump administration I had: uh, New York Times reported on uh, March fourth on Sunday that the State Department uh, has not used any of the $120 million uh, that was allocated to it to combat foreign meddling in elections. And so we are now, what, eight months away from midterm elections. The State Department was allocated this money. Uh, and according to this New York Times report, uh, they, they've spent zero of it uh, to counter foreign efforts to meddle in elections that we know that you know it's agreed upon both parties in congress that that meddling took place and so i think there's going to be a lot of follow up uh on this i think senator mark warner uh uh is going to be uh who has been leading some of the uh, efforts bipartisan efforts to combat foreign meddling in elections i think mark warner is going to be probably holding some hearings uh on this or at least uh, uh pressing this issue publicly so 
I, I thought that was a, a fascinating report from the New York Times and, and something that uh, will, will, will drive some conversation this week. At least it should. Yeah. Um, my, my second headline was uh, dealing with a uh, the Hill is reporting that the Senate will vote on an expansive bipartisan bill to loosen uh, Dodd-Frank regulations. We know that Dodd-Frank is the Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act that was signed by President Obama in 2010 after the 2008 financial collapse. And what they'll be doing is easing some of the restrictions on larger banks and what uh, is considered a, lar- a large bank. Mm. Uh, now, we noticed that we we haven't had any movement on guns. Right. We haven't uh, had any movement on immigration. Right. Or dreamers. Yeah. But Democrats and Republicans can come together to pass a bank deregulation uh, yeah. bill. Now, I guess it does show, if nothing else, that where there's a will, there's a way. Right. Uh, it shows us that uh, uh, bipartisanship is actually possible, if nothing else, even <laughs> if it's only for those with, with larger wallets. Yeah. But I'm just going to I'm not going to give a whole lot of commentary. I'm just going to let everybody think about that. Uh, bipartisanship is possible. Well, just in moving across the Atlantic, the Italians held their national elections uh, this past weekend, and they resulted in uh, big wins, a resurgence for uh, the hard right populist anti-EU, anti-immigrant uh, forces in that country, including the Five Star Movement, a populist hard right party uh, that received uh, about a third of the votes cast, and so the Italian government will will need to form uh, that will take uh, take place. There'll be a process that uh, will, will take months. Uh, what's clear is that the hard right has. Uh, more cards in its hand than it had previous to this election. Uh, I mean, uh, Justin, we're talking about explicitly uh, fascist, neo-fascist parties uh, uh, winning not insignificant portions of the vote. And so this is going to send shockwaves through Italy, shockwaves through uh, EU, uh, that there had been some hopes that sort of the right-wing resurgence uh, uh, in Europe uh, had been uh, calmed a bit by Macron's victory in France, by Merkel staving off the hard right in Germany. But these Italian elections uh, show that uh, that that challenge is is, uh, far from far from over. And and so it will be important to see how uh, other elections in Europe go uh, uh, this year uh, uh, to see what the future of anti-immigrant populist hard right politics is uh, in Europe. Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Uh, In other news, uh, teachers in West Virginia have been on strike for about eight or nine days since uh, February 22nd. 20,000 teachers are on strike, which means that 277,000 students are out of class. Hmm. And what they are asking for is a 5% raise in their salary. Uh, Unfortunately, West Virginia teachers are some of the lowest paid teachers in the nation. Uh, uh, It sounds like that the state house in West Virginia passed the 5% raise, but the state Senate would only give them a 4% raise. And so as we speak, uh, they are still on strike. But let's hope that we get our teachers uh, paid. We need to we need to do a little bit better job of that in this country. 
Yeah, absolutely. We need to get these teachers paid and kids back in the classroom. Uh, the, the the last story I have is uh, this Tuesday, actually, uh, there are a primary elections, particularly in, in Illinois and Texas, uh, that will really uh, uh, put another marker on the direction of the Democratic Party. In Illinois, Dan Lipinski is up. Uh, is facing a primary challenger. Lipinski is one of the three or so pro-life Democrats left uh, in the House, and he has a challenger from the left. And then in Texas, uh, there is a, a candidate, Laura Moser, who uh, the the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, several weeks ago, actually put out opposition research on Moser uh, a, a fellow Democrat, uh, because they favor her opponent, and uh, and so it's it's interesting. Uh, sort of Democratic forces are uh, opposing uh, Lipinski from the left. They're opposing Moser, kind of from from the right. Uh, and and uh, we'll see how these elections play out. But it'll it'll give us a sense of how the table will be set. Uh, for the November midterm. That's right. Well, thanks for joining us. We want to give a, a final thank you uh, to the U.S. Senators, uh, Senator James Lankford, Senator Chris Coons. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you all enjoyed it, and we'll see you next week. Absolutely. I'm grooving for the activists and graduates. I'm an advocate for those feeling abandonment. In the favelas and slums of ghetto inhabitants, it's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? The only thing good came out of Nazareth. This is the groove. Tell me, can yeah. you handle it? I'm schooled in the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fade.